Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. 2012, as I said, Scientific American published an article uh, where they claimed that it was scientifically done. It was proof that humanity, people are basically good out there. Now, to me, it seemed that they were ignoring an abundance of evidence to the contrary. Like, nobody apparently looked at, looked at the evening news. Because the evening news is always about bad news. It's not about the good news. Because there's a lot of people that are struggling with evil out there. In fact, evil is dominant. So it's all over our society. With the advent of the internet and the advent of cell phones, we're able to sort of see so much more evil and capture so much evil. And that thin veneer of the belief in innate human goodness, I think, has been completely washed away now that we can see what's actually going on in most of the world through the internet out there. In fact, the internet even has a specific side to it. You've probably heard of this, something called the dark web. It's uh, just a whole section of the internet committed to evil and sinful things. And on the internet, the most dominant type of sites out there, by far above other sites, are pornographic sites. And then you start to wonder, how can somebody in their right mind say that people are inherently or naturally good? when there is such an abundance of evil out there. We start to ask ourselves this question. Why is there so much evil in this world? And where does all this evil come from? At one time, we believed that it was only extraordinarily evil people that could do extraordinarily evil things. Now we know that's actually not true. There was a man named uh, Jamie Waller who published a book called Becoming Evil, How Ordinary People Commit Genocide and Mass Killing. And the thesis of his book as he studied it is that it's ordinary people like you and me who do some of the most horrific and terrible things. For instance, look at Columbine where you have just some high school students who planned mass murder of their own peers. When we look at things like that, we often like to say, well, I would never do that. But the truth is we should all say, if it were not for the grace of God, I could do the exact same thing. Because it's ordinary people like you and me that can do extraordinarily evil things. You start to wonder, you know, where does all this evil that ordinary people do, where does it come from? How does it get pushed into us? How does it happen? 2007, another landmark book came out by a man named Phil um, Zimbardo. His book was entitled The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil. The thesis of his book is that ordinary people like you and me can turn extraordinarily evil if they're put in the right circumstances or put around the, the right people. The idea was he felt that evil was around us and evil gets pushed into us if we're just in the wrong circumstance or with the wrong people. So you could say if things don't turn out and you make some really sinful choices as an adult, it's really mom and dad's fault because they didn't give you enough toys on Christmas morning. It's not your fault. It was pushed into you. 
Or if you're married and you end up being unfaithful to your spouse, well, it's not your fault. It's really your spouse's fault because they didn't love you adequately enough the way you deserve to be loved. Or the idea is if you're stealing from work, he says you would say, well, if they just paid you more, you wouldn't steal. That all the evil in this world came from circumstances or people around you. What do you think? Does that sound right to you? If you're biblically schooled, you should say absolutely not. The Bible is very clear that there is a ton of evil in this world. But the problem of evil comes from within. It comes from our heart within us, not the circumstances around us. And we're going to be looking at that this morning. Because if you struggle with evil, if you struggle with sin, and you struggle with how do I change this within me, we're going to talk about that today. Here at Crosswinds, we've been studying our way through the Gospel of Mark. And today we're in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Last week, when we were in the first um, 13 verses of that chapter, we saw that Jesus was approached by some scribes, scribes from Jerusalem who had come to test him and and to try and and entrap him. They couldn't find anything he was doing wrong biblically, but they thought that he and his disciples, rather, were doing some things wrong traditionally. They were eating with unwashed hands, remember that? And they took Jesus and his disciples to task over that. And so last week, we looked at the issue of tradition versus Scripture and how dangerous it is is sometimes to start to give our traditions as much weight as Scripture or even we can sometimes lift our traditions over Scripture. That was last week. But this week, as we move on, we're going to look at the whole concept that uh, these scribes are pushing. The idea that it is something outside of us, a defilement outside of us, eating with unwashed hands that was creating defilement within us. You see, these ancient scribes had a lot in common with the modern-day psychologists out there. The ancient scribes were saying that Jesus' disciples, because they ate with unwashed hands, were having defilement from outside of themselves communicated to you inside of themselves. The same thing that modern psychologists say. That if you're in just the wrong circumstances or around the wrong people, that will make you become evil and sinful, which the Bible says is absolutely not true. We're going to discover those truths in greater depth as we get into the text this morning. Now, the text is rather short. It breaks up into two logical pieces. One is the parable that Jesus gives itself, and the next part is simply the interpretation of the parable, where Jesus takes the parable and teases it out in a little greater detail. And we'll just work our way right through the text. Let me see here. We'll start down here with the parable. Beginning in Mark chapter 7, 14 through 15. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
Jesus grabs the people and he says this. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand. This is a little bit like the old E.F. Hutton line. You know, when E.F. Hutton talks, everybody should listen. The idea is, guys, come back here. I want you to listen to what I'm going to say. This is really, really important to understand. Nothing from outside of you can communicate defilement to inside of you. Defilement in our life comes from what's inside of us working its way outside of us. Those scribes thought that people were basically good. Eating with unwashed hands is what sort of communicated defilement and sin within them. Jesus says, no, it's the exact opposite way around. It's the defilement within us that comes out of us that is the real problem. What matters, he says, is our heart, not the defilement of our hands. In fact, Jesus looks at the importance of the heart, in, or the scriptures look at the importance of the heart in a number of places, like 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Or Proverbs 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Now, there's a good question that rises logically and naturally out of this. If God is so concerned with our heart, what's on the inside of us, and not really that concerned with the things that we do with our hands on the outside of us, why in the Old Testament did God give so many rituals? Why did he give so many ceremonies, so many things that people had to physically avoid? and ritually do? That's a good question. For instance, uh, people were not allowed to drink certain things or they would be unclean. They could not touch a reptile or they were called unclean. They could not touch a dead body or they were unclean. If a woman gave birth to a child for a period of time, she was also considered unclean. And if a person was unclean, you didn't want to touch them or you were considered unclean. If it really matters what's in the heart, why are there these Old Testament rituals and rules that were so external and required to be obeyed? Here's the answer. The external rituals and rules in the Old Testament were intended to be temporary in nature, and they were intended to be symbolic in nature. They were external signs pointing to the importance of purity in the heart. They were not to replace purity of the heart. Old Testament uh, external rituals and rules. Think of it this way. You know when you teach a child to read, you are always starting with picture books. If you get them to understand the pictures, then you start to move on to picture books with words under them. And the pictures help them eventually understand the words. And the idea was once that your children learned how to read the words, they no longer needed the pictures. 
And that's like the Old Testament, rituals and rules. They were the pictures. They were the symbols. They were intended to be temporary in nature. They were pointing to what was more permanent and lasting, which is the issues of the heart. They were pointing to heart issues. For instance, as you get to the book of Hebrews, this is what you find in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10 but only deal with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body. They were imposed, it says, until the time of reformation. What is the author of Hebrews saying? The time of reformation is the coming of Christ. That when Christ comes, all these pictures and symbols pointed to him and know they're no longer needed once you actually have him. They were basic illustrations externally pointing to the reality of the heart internally. Which is why in the Old Testament you have all these rituals, rules, and regulations, but you come to the New Testament and guess what? There are none of these ritual rules and regulations because they were pointing to Jesus. Now that you have him, you don't need the picture book anymore. In fact, Jesus criticized a lot of the um, religious leaders in his day because what happened was they were so concerned with these external things that they had completely neglected what they pointed to, which was the internal things, the internal realities of their heart. Remember this verse from Matthew 23, 27? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which, appear, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness? The rituals, or the scribes, the Pharisees, these guys looked extremely good on the outside. They followed all the proper food laws. They ritually washed their hands just properly. They never touched an unclean animal. They got it all right on the outside. But the honest truth is we have learned before the Gospel of Mark that at this point they are planning the murder of Jesus. They are filled with filth, hatred, deceit, and murder on the inside. What matters is the heart, not the external things. And folks, the same is true today. What God is most concerned about, not the external things in your life that other people can see, He's most concerned about your heart that only you and God can see. It doesn't matter how faithfully you attend church doesn't matter how enthusiastically you sing on a Sunday morning. doesn't matter how much you put in the offering plate. doesn't matter how much you serve or where you serve. What God is really looking at is your heart, the purity and intentions of your heart and your love for Him. That is actually what matters in God's mind. Now, as we move on from verse 15 to verse 16, if you're looking in your Bible, you'll notice there's a problem here because all of a sudden verse 16 is missing. It goes from verse 15 to verse 17. You may wonder, well, wait a minute. What happened? Why is verse 16 actually missing? Now, I'm going to tell you that you'll run across some people, by the way, out there who will uh, chastise you for using a modern translation of the Bible. 
And I've run across these people. They'll say, don't use modern translations because they take verses out of your Bible and they're missing. You should always use the King James because the King James has all the verses in the Bible. And this would be one of the examples they like to use. And you wonder, well, why is verse 16 missing? And here's the backstory on it. The King James, why it's a very old English translation, when it was translated out of the Greek, the Greek manuscripts they used were actually not that old. But if you go to the very oldest Greek manuscripts that we have, which are hundreds of years earlier than the ones used by the King James, you find that the words in verse 16 are not in the earliest manuscripts out there. Apparently what had happened is because these manuscripts are always copied by hand, somewhere, somewhere along the line, much later in history, somebody wrote down those words that were, we see in verse 16, which simply are this, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Put those words in his copy, and his copy was continued to be copied by other people, and eventually somebody who translated the King James copied it into their English translation. But the ESV that you and I have in our hands, which is a newer English translation, is based on much older, much more accurate Greece manuscripts, which do not have those words in it. So the ESV Bible that we have in front of us simply doesn't really remove the verse. It puts it in a footnote. So you know that, and then it essentially explains what I just told you. And I tell you this because every once in a while you're going to run across somebody who is going to get all up in arms and say, do not use a modern translation of the Bible because they take verses out. And they will use this verse as an example. And it's one of those things where a person knows enough to be dangerous, but apparently not enough to know what's right. But you know the rest of the story. Now let's go ahead and move on back to this, the main part here and look at the interpretation. There's two parts to it. Number one, what goes into a person cannot make him unclean before God. And here's what Jesus explains it to his disciples. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and then is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. At this point, we know that the scribes had left, the crowd had left, and it says Jesus actually went into a house with his disciples. At this point, we, it seems that they were in Capernaum. If they were in Capernaum, no doubt he went into the, probably the house of Peter and Andrew because we learned earlier in the Gospel of Mark that was the house in the city of Capernaum that he used as his base of operations while there. Also in the larger balance of the Gospel of Mark, whenever you see it says he entered into a house, it, the shift always goes from Jesus speaking to the crowds to speaking and training his disciples. That consistently happens in this gospel. So that's what happens here. Jesus is now going to be shifting to teaching his disciples. And the thing that's shocking is they say, hey, we don't really understand this parable. Please explain this parable. And if you're like me, you're like, 
How much simpler could you get? This parable is so straightforward. Why are they having a hard time absorbing it? And here's what I think. I don't think because it's linguistically difficult to communicate. That's not the problem. The issue is that it is such an earth-shaking truth to their world, they are having a hard time wrapping their minds around it. Think about this. They are Jewish. From birth, they have been taught to live to avoid all unclean things, not to touch reptiles, not to touch dead people, not to be in any way that would defile them, not to touch pork, not to touch any kind of Samaritans. This is what they've had beat into their heads since they were two years old. And now Jesus, in one simple phrase, says, you know what, all that external stuff, it really doesn't matter. And they're just having a hard time getting their minds around it, that it is such a big deal. Defilement doesn't come from outside of us into us. It comes from inside of us and works its way out. Now, if you notice, there's a little phrase at the end here where Mark inserts himself as an editor, which he almost never does in this entire book. And he simply says this, With this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Why would he say that? Here's the fun backstory. Remember, we've been studying this. We learned that John Mark is the author of this gospel. But he is not making this up out of his head. He is getting this all directly from the Apostle Peter. Remember in the first message in this series, he traveled with the Apostle Peter. And this is really the story of the Apostle Peter's first-hand eyewitness accounts of being with Jesus. Did Peter ever struggle with this concept? Did Peter ever struggle with wanting to stay with avoiding things that are unclean and the concept of being worried about defiled foods all the time, even as a mature Christian? Yes, he did. Remember Acts chapter 10, when Peter was given a vision of a sheet coming down with unclean animals on it? And Jesus said to him, Peter, get up kill and eat? And he says, oh, no, I could not. I've never touched or eaten anything unclean. And Jesus said it again, get up, kill and eat. Oh, I couldn't do that. Three times Jesus told him, do not say anything is unclean when I have made it clean. And then finally the sheet was taken up. And Peter was left pondering what this vision meant. And immediately right after that, some Gentiles came to his house. Essentially, the Gentiles were saying, come and tell us about Jesus. Gentiles would be considered unclean. But ringing in his mind were the very words, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. That includes foods, and that includes Gentiles. So Peter went and he uh, preached the gospel to them. You'd think Peter would have learned his lesson. But sometimes when things are deeply rooted in you, you have to learn them again and again. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. Because a little bit later, up in the area of Antioch, remember that uh, Peter, or Peter separated himself 
from the Gentiles and would only eat with the Jews. And then who rebuked him that time? Paul in Galatians chapter 2. Paul said, why are you following all these clean and unclean regulations when you're supposed to be following Jesus? So what I think is going on, here is Peter giving this section of, of the gospel to Mark who is writing it down. And uh, Peter stops and he sort of says, right there, right there. That's where Jesus declared all foods clean. But I was a slow learner. In fact, he had to teach it to me two more times after that because I couldn't get it through my head because I loved my Jewish tradition so much. But right after that, I'm sure Peter said, So, John Mark, uh, please pass another pork rib and some more of that shrimp. It's pretty tasty. And make sure I have bacon with my breakfast. See, he's finally learned that God, or Jesus has declared all foods clean. And I say this to you because every once in a while, you're going to see a book that comes out. And in the book, someone's going to say, if you really want to please God, you have to go back to the Old Testament. And you need to follow the Old Testament food laws, the Old Testament regulations. And you know what you say when you see those books? No, I don't. Because it says right here that Jesus has declared all foods clean. So it's Mother's Day. Have some lobster. Have some shrimp. All to the glory of God. Thank you, Jesus. Now, that was the first part of the interpretation. That uncleanness doesn't come from things outside of us being forced in, whether that's uh, different kinds of foods that would be historically considered unclean, or it could be circumstances, or people. They don't make us sin or communicate in sin inside of us. The next part is what comes out of a person is what makes him unclean before God. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these things come from within, and they are what defile a person. Now, as we work our way through this, I want you to point out there's some structure in here. The first half of this list is mostly plural, which is talking about sinful um, actions. The second half of this list is mostly singular, which is talking about sinful attitudes. So sinful actions and sinful attitudes, he says, all start from our own heart. Let me work our way through this. Evil thoughts. It's a very general term. It's called the general thoughts that just roam around your mind. He says they're evil. Imagine I had a machine. And with the machine, I could put this sort of thing on your head and it captured all of your thoughts in full living color. And it would project them up onto the big screens. And I'd challenge somebody to wear it for 24 hours, and we could all be here to see exactly what you are thinking. Who would wear that? Anybody? Well, why? It's because we have constantly evil thoughts in our mind. 
Does anybody make you think those things? Was it because you, you know, ate some unclean food or didn't properly wash your hands that you all of a sudden started thinking those things? Absolutely not. Our own heart generates those things. Our own heart gushes evil out. That's where the problem is. Take sexual immorality as the next in the list. That's the Greek word pornea. It refers to any sexual relations outside of a man and a woman within the bonds of marriage. It refers to adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, and yes, pornography. Where do those evil acts come from? Premarital, extramarital, and homosexual sex. Where does it all come from? Is it forced on us? Do people make us do those things? No, it comes out of our heart. There may be situations, there may be circumstances that tempt us, but that tempts the evil out of us. It doesn't put the evil in us. Because the problem is every single time our heart. Or take thefts. This is the Greek word klepto. You ever heard of a kleptomaniac? That's literally that, that Greek word. Stealing maniac. And oftentimes you hear the reason people steer is, steal is because they're in poverty. They don't have anything, so they have to steal. It's situations and circumstances outside of them that make them steal. I completely disagree. The scriptures say the reason that people steal is because of a sick, sinful heart. There are rich people that steal. There are poor people that steal. The problem is always the heart, not the circumstance. Take murder, the taking of life. Where does a murder or desire and actual action of murder come from? It comes from the sickness of a heart. Say someone does something terribly wrong to you. You have two choices. You could either wait for the wheels of justice in society to turn, which they turn, but they turn slowly, or you could take it upon yourself and take justice into your own hands and you could murder someone. Murder is not forced on you. A tough circumstance draws that anger out of you that was already within you. Each one of us has great deals, amounts of anger inside of us. That if we're in the right circumstance, it pulls that amount of anger out of us. Take adulteries. It's any kind, that literally means any kind of violation of the marriage covenant. Say you have somebody who is in the army and he is away from his spouse for over a year, and he is very lonely. It is a, a difficult time. Does that all of a sudden provide justification for infidelity? It's a difficult circumstances, but people have been in lots of difficult circumstances. Circumstances don't make someone unfaithful. It's the evilness of a heart that makes them unfaithful. Deeds of coveting. That's, I have to have somebody, I have to have something because everybody else has that. I covet what they have. Where does that come from? Does anybody force you to buy something at Walmart? Twist your arm behind your back and, and make you buy? Absolutely not. It comes from your heart. I have to have because other people's have. Now it moves from actions to attitudes. How about deceit? 
Deceit is not telling the truth, but more honestly, deceit is telling only part of the truth to frame something in a way that is not the truth. Is it because you ate pork that all of a sudden you decided to be deceitful to somebody? Is it because the person that you were with at lunch uh, sort of influenced you and made you deceitful? No, it comes from our own heart. The evil of our own heart is where the deceit comes from. The same with sensuality and, the, and envy. Envy here literally means an evil eye. It's looking at other people with jealousy and hatred because they have stuff that you don't have. So you're consumed with that. Where does that attitude come from? Not outside of us, but once again, inside of us. Slander. This is speaking to somebody with abusive language or speech or swearing at them. I have news for you. You do not make anyone else swear. You may inconvenience them. You may frustrate them. But when they're inconvenienced and frustrated and they erupt in a... Um, verbal volcano of profanity all over you, all you did was reveal what was already in their heart. You revealed the wickedness in them. You didn't put the wickedness in them. You see how this all comes out of the heart? And lastly is pride. It's an attitude of arrogance and superiority, feeling you're better than others rather than a servant of others. Where does that come from? It comes from the heart. Now, none of these actions and attitudes that Jesus just described are put in there from outside of us. They're normally living with inside of us. And the other thing you need to know is just as there's no, nothing outside of us that can put that wickedness in us, there's nothing outside of us that can clean that wickedness out of us. The problem is our heart. And there's nothing we can do to change it. As I said earlier, you could have a perfect attendance pin for church. You could give generously in the offering. You could serve in all kinds of ways. You may change things on the outside, but you will not be able to change the wickedness of your heart on the inside. And here's where the good news comes. There is a way to change the wickedness of your heart the wickedness that we struggle with every day. And the answer doesn't come from what we do. It comes from what God does in us. Here's the good news. God offers me a new heart through Jesus. It was prophesied that it was coming in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promised that one day there was going to be a time when he was going to change what is the source of all the problems in the world, which are not circumstances, all the problems in the world come from our wicked and evil hearts that every single one of us has within us. And we come to the New Testament 
what we find is that when we trust in Jesus Christ, not only are we forgiven of our sin, but God puts a new heart within us. A heart that loves Jesus more than sin, and a heart that loves pleasing Jesus more than the delight of sin. Look what it says in Titus, verses 3, 5 through 6. He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does regeneration mean? It means something dies, which is our old heart, and something new is born, which is our new heart. Our old heart dies when we trust in Jesus Christ. Not that we no longer love sin or like sin, but we love Jesus more than sin with our new heart. Today, people think all the problems in this world come from society. The problems are that we need better education. We need um, someone different in the White House. If we could just change all the things around us, all the problems would go away from us. And I have news for you. It's just not true. You could live in the perfect home. You could live in the perfect um, political environment. You could live in the perfect job, and you would still choose and love sin unless you have Jesus Christ who has given you a new heart that loves him more than it loves sin. Now let me give you the applications from the message. And here they are. Number one, we can eat what we like. It was very clear in this passage that the Old Testament food laws no longer apply. They were temporary. They were symbolic. They were external things that pointed to the reality of purity in the heart. And now that Jesus Christ has come, we can eat what we like. So on Mother's Day, go enjoy some pork. Go enjoy some shellfish. And do it all to the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus. Number two, Jesus cares about what I think, not just what I do. Many times we get pulled into the trap that as long as we don't do something, we're okay, but we can think about something, whether that's anger or whether that's watching it on television or in a variety of things. We run all kinds of wicked things through our mind and think it doesn't matter. While wickedness we do is worse than wickedness in our mind, what God is after in our life is purity in our heart, not just purity in our hands. You know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? I tell you that a man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart because the heart is what matters. And lastly is this. God offers me a new heart, a heart that loves Jesus more than it loves sin. That when we come to Christ, we repent of our sin, and we trust in him, he doesn't just forgive us, but he gives us a new heart that loves him more than it loves sin. That is the secret to change. The secret to change the sinful desires of your heart is to cultivate your love with Christ, to walk with Christ, because Jesus is more satisfying 
than sin ever could be. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that what you are after in our lives is just not external things, but you're after our heart. I thank you, Lord, that you, Jesus, that you give us a new heart when we trust in you, a heart that desires you more than sin itself. I thank you for the honest truth that it's not sin outside of us that ruins us, it's the sin inside of us that ruins us. So I pray that you'd help us to all be honest, that it's not circumstances that cause us to sin, it's our heart that causes us to sin. And what we need more than ever is to follow hard after you. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.